Okay, Ephesians. Please go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. I am excited because it is only quarter past 11, which means I have a long time to preach in, which is a preacher's dream. I will be done by two at the absolute latest. But this morning, what I really want to do is I want to pull together the Ephesians that we've been, the series on Ephesians that we've been doing for the past 26 weeks. We started it on week four of the church plant, and now the week before we celebrate our anniversary, we're finishing it. And so if you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've got Ephesians, the Speedboat Tour. We've been looking together at God's master plan of the church, which is what the book of Ephesians is all about. And each week you will have noticed that we've been taking a glass bottom boat tour. There's been no rush, which is why it can take you a full year. And that's expository preaching. It's when we take a small passage of scripture and we study it at length and really get to the bottom and handle of it in terms of what is God saying to us and how do we apply this in our lives and how does it function. And that's what you call a glass bottom boat tour. When Emma and I went to, um, I think was it Mallorca? It was Mallorca a number of years ago. We went on one of these glass bottom boats and they are certainly different. You know, you go around and they can be exhilarating at times as you see detail in the waters. You see the different fish, as you see the different rocks, the different beach formations through this glass bottom boat. It is good. And yet I've always been more of a speedboat type of person. You know what I'm saying? They are exhilarating. You get strapped into those bad boys, you put the helmet on, you put Lydia's helmet on and off we go at a rate of knots and it is a lot of fun. It is exhilarating, it is inspiring and that's what we're going to do today with Ephesians. I want us to be exhilarated by the whole book. And so we're not going to take one portion of it. We are going to take all six chapters of it so we can be exhilarated by the tour and so that we can then understand how do we respond to this book in its entirety. How do we see it as a complete letter? And then how do we respond to it? What does God require of us as we read all six chapters? And so let's pray and then we'll begin the tour. Well, Lord, what a book this is how kind of you how how precious of you to inscribe in scripture for us for all eternity the words of ephesians lord thank you for the last 26 weeks thank you for the joy that we have had gathering around your word seeking to understand it lord thank you for its clarity thank you for the fact that it gives us life and joy and amazement And thank you for being clear as to how we're to respond. Lord, we're not left guessing as we study your word. We know exactly how we are seeking to apply. And so, Lord, today as we go on the speedboat tour, would you minister to us afresh? Lord, if there's anything we've missed, would we grasp it this morning? Would you speak to us in your precious and holy name? Thank you, Lord. Amen. This tour like any speedboat tour, does indeed kick off at a rate of knots. If you've ever been on a speedboat tour, one thing is familiar. As soon as you rock out the harbour, you are full on. And that's exactly what Paul does here in chapter 1, verses 3 to verse 10 in particular. You see, right up front at the start of this tour, God, we see God reconciling sinners to himself. And that's where the plan begins. We get to review our very own salvations, and delight in the fact that they are indeed all of grace. And that is where God's master plan for the church begins. 
It begins with God saving people, individuals by his grace and for his glory, by reconciling them to himself. We learn the backdrop to this tour is simply this, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Do you grasp that? You were dead. You were gone. Last year we looked at a young girl called Jessica McClure. Remember the little girl that we talked about in the illustration that gets stuck down an eight-inch pipe? She's a toddler. She's 18 months old. And she is completely helpless, 22 feet down an eight-inch pipe. God, in his grace, through gifted fire servicemen, saves her. He protects her. And he pulls her out of this eight-inch pipe through gifted men. And right up front here, as we study the book of Ephesians, we are faced very quickly that we're like Jessica McClure when it comes to our spirituality. We are dead in our transgressions and sins, and we are completely helpless to do anything about it. Our situation could not be more perilous. It says very distinctly then that we were by nature objects of wrath. We were on a collision course with an almighty, holy, just God. That was our story. That was your story. That was who we were. We were on a collision course with an almighty God and we could do absolutely nothing about it in and of ourselves. But then this is what we read in chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. We read about the fact that God didn't leave us there. He came after us. This is what it says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, came after us. You see, this story of the church begins before there was even time. Before you were even born, before the foundations of the world were even in place, God in his grace was choosing you. Choosing you for salvation. Choosing you before the world even began. Setting you apart for the gift of salvation. Through Jesus Christ then, as we read there, he redeemed us. He paid the ransom necessary for us to be released from our slavery to sin. He then made it possible for us to be justified. So that God would see us as if we had not even sinned. And he forgave us, removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. But God in his grace, as he plucks us from that tube, as he plucks us from the grave, doesn't then just send us on our way, does he? He adopts us. A people that were lost, a people that were running away from him, he draws us to himself, calling us his very own. A people that were once his enemy, now seated at the very table of God. He then gives us in the gift of grace, the Holy Spirit, a deposit sealing our inheritance. A deposit guaranteeing that without question, heaven is our home. 
See, one day we will be home. One day we will be in a place that where there is no more sin, no more decay, no more illness, no more difficulty, no more challenge, no more disgust, no more sin, no more reading newspapers, just reading of the commiseration of a broken down house. But instead a place filled with joy, with singing, with feasting, with drinking. Most importantly though, the Saviour will be there. The one who made it possible for our redemption. That's where Paul begins. God touring us around as the speedboat leaves the harbour. God reconciling sinners to himself. But then as soon as we hit chapter 2, we discover that God is not only doing that. In this master plan of the church, God is also reconciling sinners to one another. So you don't have to be around Ephesians chapter 2 long to realize that God is not just saving sinners to himself and then sending them out single-handedly as lone rangers for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? We live in a world, and particularly we live in a culture, I think, here in Australia, particularly in Sydney, of lone ranger Christianity, that we just use Jesus and me. Isn't God good? God's been very good to me. He saved me, and then we all go off and do our individual things. But that is not the story of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, you realize that God has not only reconciled us to himself, he's reconciled us to one another. It was never God's plan that we'd be lone rangers for Jesus. The beauty of his plan is that he not only saves individuals, he brings us together. He not only justifies, he joins. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says it this way. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Don't you love that? Through Jesus Christ, you and I, we now belong. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of a new race. A new race that God is building together from every tribe and language and nation, from every different type of background, from every age, every gender. All the different gifts and abilities of the universe, he's drawing together and building a new race of which we are declared by Paul to be fellow citizens, members of a new household, a new family, brothers and sisters, mums and dads gathering around together in a new family and living stones of a new temple. Festo Kevangiri, one of the pastors of the African Enterprise, says this, he says, The cutting of the stone is done, and you have been fitted in. And that is how he is taking us, stones of all races and backgrounds, and fitting us together into a beautiful dwelling place for God. Now the beauty of God's great plan for the church is that this plan is far bigger than you or I. It is far bigger than just Jesus and me. In fact, it is not about Jesus and me at all. The beauty of this plan is it is all about Jesus and we. God saves into the context of community. He saves into the context of a new temple, a new race, a new family. God saves in his abounding grace into the context that we call church. And then in chapter 3, 
He gives purpose for that context. The purposes are indeed twofold. They are both in this world, and as we saw as we studied Ephesians, they are also out of this world. See, in this world, it is the church that has been called by God to represent Jesus Christ. It is the church's responsibility to represent corporately Jesus Christ in the world. You see, if you read your Bible, which I know you do, you will discover time and time again that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That means he's not here. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so how does then our communities and our cities and our towns see Jesus? How do they actually see his hands? How do they actually see his feet? How do they feel his heart? Well, as biblically defined, they are called to see Jesus through his body. Well, what is his body? If his body is at the right hand of God, what is it? As biblically defined, his body is the church. It is through the church, people who are linked together, arm in arm, who are seeking to care for one another and encourage one another and be devoted to one another and carry one another's burdens for the glory of God, who are seeking to evangelize together, who are seeking to minister in their communities by the grace of God and for the glory of God. It is through that type of church that God has called the communities to see Jesus. Is that an incredible task or or what? How is Normanhurst and Hornsby... And all of this northern area of Sydney meant to see Jesus. How? Well, there's only actually one way. Through the church. We are his hands and we are his feet. We are the people who have been called by God, saved by his incredible grace, pulled from the pit, once dead in our transgressions and sins, now joined to one another so that by God's grace we could be committed to one another and connected to one another and then corporately take the gospel out as a local expression of his body, just like all the other churches in this area. What a profound purpose for the local church. A profound purpose in the world. What an incredible calling on our lives, don't you think? If Sovereign Grace Church Sydney fails over time to be Jesus in our community, then as biblically defined, we have failed. We have. If our communities in 10 years' time say, I've never ever heard of Sovereign Grace Church, who are they? Jesus, he doesn't exist in my community, he's nowhere to be seen in my city. We would have failed because that is the divine purpose on our lives in this world. That through us, that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus. But there's also a purpose on our lives which is out of this world, isn't there? And we see that in Ephesians 3 verse 10. Let's look together. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's pretty cool. As a local church, as we do life together, we are called by God and have a purpose, according to God's scripture, not only to represent Jesus Christ in the world, but accordingly what takes place is that as we do life together, as we truly gather together and care for one another and be devoted to one another and pray for one another, in God's grace we reveal then the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly realms. 
spiritualities and angels in the heavenly realms. Do you realize that? Do you realize that as we gather as a local church, in the way we behave, in the way we talk, in our unity together, that the very angels in the heavenly realms are peering over the edges of heaven and are looking down so that they may see the wisdom of God, so that they may see a group of people that were not once reconciled to one another, now reconciled to one another, doing life as family. Do you realize that the way that you give yourselves in the context of life groups and caring for one another and doing life together in the local church causes the angels in the heavenly realms to look on, see God's manifold wisdom and turn around and praise the King of kings and Lord of lords all the more? Do you see that? That is a grander purpose on the church. How are the angels to see the manifold wisdom without the church? According to this, they're not. It's through the church that they see the manifold wisdom of God. There is a divine and incredible call on the church, a call by the grace of God to get committed and to get connected so that by the grace of God, that church, these local churches, smaller expressions of the universal church may be Jesus in the communities and that the very angels may look on in the heavenly realms and see the manifold wisdom of God. That is a grand and divine purpose on any given local church. So in chapters 4 through 6 then, Paul gives us God's call to the church. See, the call to come and play our parts in this new family, in this new race, in this new temple. The call to come and play our parts in God's glorious plan for the church is evident in chapters 4, 5, and 6. This call begins, listen, your name, your name is in this letter. You've got to work out where it is. But if you are a Christian, then your name is in this letter. God is addressing you. He saved you. He's reconciled you. He's given us now corporate purpose to display Jesus in our communities, to display the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly realms. And your face is now written in chapters 4, 5, and 6 as well. Listen, this is where the call on your life begins. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You know, there's so many Christians that just think life is purposeless. They're not sure what God is really doing tell you what God is doing. He's building churches and he is calling you in chapter 4 verse 1. He is urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling then to which you have been called. In the next three chapters that follow, Paul then unpacks for us by the grace of God what it really looks like to play our parts then in the local church, in the church, the bride of Christ that God in grace is building. He urges us to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He urges us to come and play our parts, to bring the gifts and abilities that God has given us to come and play our parts in the church so that as we play our parts, the church may be built up in love. He exhorts us to pursue holiness. Remember that? 
attending the divine changing room. He exhorts us at length. You know what? If you guys are going to do this corporately, if you're truly going to maintain the unity, if you're truly not going to be divided every seven weeks, then it is so important that change takes place. It is so important that you understand your hearts. It is so important that you understand the enemy within and you then attend the divine changing room, putting off the sinful ways, renewing your mind, and then putting on putting on the gifts that Christ gives us, putting on character that reflects Christ and Him crucified. He exhorts us at the same time to work on our relationships, to work on our marriages, to work on our parenting, to work on being a kid if we're a kid, to work on our employment situations. Because in all these situations, we reflect Jesus. In all these situations, we are the church. And to put on the full armor of God, he knows full well that this grand call on our lives, this grand purpose, this divine purpose, he knows full well that if this is going to work, if churches are going to be built, that by the grace of God, the angels in the heavenly realms look on and see the manifold wisdom of God. And if churches are going to be built that reflect Jesus in their communities, he knows full well that Satan will be about trying to defeat that at every turn. And so what does he tell us in chapter 6? He tells us to put on then the full armor of God, to not be foolish, to not be stupid about the call on our lives, but to understand if this is the divine call, Satan will do all he can to cut the divine call. So put on then the full armor of God. And then when fully dressed, hit your knees and cry out to God in prayer. Is this an incredible plan or what? You see, when you understand chapters 4 through 6, it can be hard, I think, at different points on the the slow boat tour to understand how they're connected. It can appear at different times that all chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about is just improving ourselves, trying to be better Christians, and it seems to lack a, a purpose. Why are we doing this? Why am I working on my parenting? Why am I working on the workplace? Why am I putting on the full armor of God? Why am I being called to do these different things? And yet I think it's when we get in the speedboat and we then tour in the speedboat that we realize the why all relates into the local church. This whole letter is about the church. The why always relates into the building of the body, the building of the bride, the building of the family, the divine community which God has equipped for the task of reflecting him in our communities and by revealing the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly realms. You see, folks, church is biblically defined is not just a few random people who, having found each other, think, you know what? I'm a little bit bored on a Sunday. I think what I'll do is I'll go down and I'll sing a few songs and I'll hear a little message. I'd love a little cup of tea. And then I'm going to go home and get on with my life. That's not what I'm reading in my Bible. The divine plan is far more. The church was never meant to be similar to Hornsby RSL. We pop along every now and again and care for each other a little bit, play a bit of pool, and then we get on with our lives. That is not what it is. This is an incredible divine plan. God in his grace has called the church to be a new race a new family, a new temple that he is building together for his glory and by his grace, a community with very real purpose, 
Purpose that is in this world and purpose that is out of this world. A community that we are called to play our parts in. Everything that you have been given by God's grace as a gift is called ultimately to be used to further the work that he is doing. What is the work that he is doing? Building the church. This is what he's doing. He's building the church for the glory of God. This community has very real purpose. This community has very real parts for us to play in. And this community, this community cost him everything. You want to know how passionate Jesus is about the local church? Turn to Ephesians 5.25. Sadly, if we get distracted, we, I think, forget the cost to Christ for the church. We forget God's passion for the church. But Ephesians 5.25, the Apostle Paul slows the boat. And in addressing husbands, he says this, Husbands, love your wives, here's the example, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want to know how passionate the Savior is about the church? If you are perceiving that I am getting a bit lathered up about the church, I submit to you, I'm in good company. Because the Savior of the world gave his life for her. He gave everything he had for the bride. You see, this plan, it doesn't cost us anything. We didn't have to pay anything for this plan. We're just dead in our transgressions and sins. But Christ, in passion to bring about this plan, gave everything. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He, he made all things. He, he breathed out the sun. He, he breathed forth the stars and now sustains them and names them so that not one is missing. He created all mankind. He, he knitted you together in your mother's womb. And yet in reality, through Adam and Eve, mankind screwed up. Mankind rejected God. And ever since Adam and Eve, every single one of us has followed suit. Every single one of us has rejected him. Every single one of us has cut off from him and not pursued him. He was born then into the squalor of a borrowed stable. And in his life then, he was well acquainted with sorrow and great grief. Nowhere do we see that more clearly than Calvary. The age of 33 years old. He's hanging in a bloody mess on a cross. He hasn't committed any sin. He's never done anything wrong. And yet he is hanging on Calvary for the plan. For the bride. He's laying his life down for her. See, so often 
in the year 2011, the church as it's seen globally is so often in rags and tatters. But Jesus Christ still gave his life for her. If anybody is wondering how we are meant to feel about the church, behold Ephesians 5.25 and the Savior giving his life for her. John Stott in his wonderful commentary says, what stands out in Paul's development of Ephesians is the sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom's covenant love for his bride. He chose her from eternity past, set his affection upon her. And then, after buying her back from sin and death, he gently and patiently sanctifies, cleanses, and prepares her for himself. His love for his bride is not flighty, not given to whim. It is zealous, and it is unchanging. See, without question, what is on view here in the book of Ephesians is Jesus' passion for the church, his profound love for the church. What is displayed here time and time again, but particularly in Ephesians 5.25, is the ultimate cost that his passion would cost him. You want to know how he feels about the church? This is how he feels. He so loves her that he's willing to give his life up for her. He's so passionate about her that he's willing to die on a cross for her salvation. And the question then that I think this text then asks us, as we bring the speedboat into harbor again, and as we look back on all of this grand plan, having displayed it on the tour, I think the question that then this text simply asks us is this. As we leave this tour behind, what will now be on view in our lives? See, I love the Bible because we get to study God in it. But you know what else the Bible does? It studies you. It looks back at you and says, what are you going to do about it? As this tour comes to an end, what is going to be on view in our lives? We know what was on view in Jesus' life. But what is going to be on view in your life? You see, there's no question as you look at this letter that God wants our hearts. He wants our affections. That's why he seeks to spend three chapters through the Apostle Paul giving us doctrine. He wants to tour us around the glories of the plan. He wants to tour us around all that he has done for us. He wants to tour us around what it is to be saved, what it is to be reconciled to God and then reconciled to one another and what it is to have corporate purpose. He spends three whole chapters singing those glories to us so that we may be amazed and our hearts may be affectionate towards this grand plan. But we would be missing the point if we didn't also understand that God in this letter clearly also wants our actions. That's why he spends three chapters giving us application. He wants our hearts and he wants our actions. So as this tour comes to an end then, what is going to be on view in our lives? Do we just go away at the end of the year and say, that was lovely, thank you. What are we doing next? Or do we bring the boat in and say, okay, Lord, how do I apply? 
I see by your grace that you are passionate about the church. There is no question as you study the book of Ephesians that Jesus was passionate about the church, that he loved the church, that he gave everything to the church. Well, listen then, my friends. Behold, Ephesians 5 verse 1. What does it say? Be imitators of me. I rest my case. He is passionate about the church. He wants us to be passionate about the church. He spends three chapters then disclosing to us what that passion is to look like. And so here's three headlines as we finish. How do we appropriately respond to this tour? As it comes in, understanding that God wants our hearts and our actions as we leave the tour. Here's how we appropriately respond. Three things. Number one, we get connected and committed in. We get connected and we get committed in. See, I was thinking this week about church. I was thinking about it a lot. Quite a tricky endeavor to bring 26 weeks into one final week. But nonetheless, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, it's so easy to think of church and to treat church like a high school date. You know what I'm saying? And it's, trying, it's so easy to think of church as something that we, we kind of come and go with. And so we treat her, the bride. She's a lovely bride, but I'm not, I don't want to get too serious. She's a bride. You know, I'd like to think of her more as a girlfriend, more of somebody I hang out with every now and again. So it's easy to think of the church as like a high school date. We flirt with her a bit. We don't commit to her because, you know, we don't like the C word, commit word. So we just like to hang out with her for a bit and we just like to date her now and again when it fits in with us, you know, but I'm not really laying my life down for a date. I'm just going to try and flirt with her a little bit and I'm going to come in and out when it suits me because she's my date. And when I want a date, that's good. And when I don't want a date, I don't want a date. We therefore hang with her a little while and we hang out with her at different times of the week because we, we quite like her now and again. But all the time when we're hanging out with this girl, we're aware that she is going to at some point bring up the C word, the commit word, and we don't want the commit word because she's just a high school date. And so we, when she brings up the C word, the commit word, we find another date. We're going to find somewhere else that we can just hang out with instead because I don't want anything too serious. I just want a date. So instead of really being married to her, we just date her. And all along while we're dating her, we weigh up our options to see if some other offer on a Sunday date comes up instead. A date that I might prefer. A date that I might fancy a bit more. Do you see that? It's so easy to think of the church like a date. But Jesus didn't date the church. He gave his life for her. He committed to her. And he connected to her. And he gave his life up for her. John Stott says it this way. He says, If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? Listen. How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center. I love that. How dare, how dare we in 2011 in Sydney, how dare we take lightly something that God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference and date something that God places right at the center? Right at the center of his plan for the redemption of the world, right at the center lies the church 
of which local churches are an expression of the church. How dare we then push to the circumference something that he places at the center? Chuck Colson in response, talking about local church, says it this way. He says, of course, every believer is part of the universal church. But for any Christian who has a choice in the matter, failure to cleave to a local church is failure to obey Christ. For it is only through a confessing local body of believers that we carry out the work of the church in the world. It is within the local church that we commit ourselves to intimate relationships with fellow believers and submit ourselves to accountability, duties and responsibilities. In this community, our Christian character is shaped and it is the context in which our spiritual gifts are developed and exercised. You know what? This Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. And it knows nothing of a religion and a Christianity that is not connected and not committed. It's just not here. But what it sings of are people who by the grace of God commit themselves and connect with other believers in the context of local churches where there is a pastor, where there are sacraments, where there is singing, where there is preaching, where there is serving, where there is evangelism. We are called by God's grace to do that. And so as we come in from the speedboat tour, if we can just walk away and then be lone rangers for Jesus then we didn't see the tour. This is central. This is the central thing to his plan. And so I encourage you then, we get connected and we get committed in. You know what we do when we get there? Here's number two. We passionately, we passionately participate. See, God in his grace has given us gifts and abilities, hasn't he? And you know, in Exodus 28, just a wonderful scene that I enjoy, In Exodus chapter 28, he's talking to to Moses about getting some of the guys together to help build the tabernacle, to help build all the different things that Aaron and the different priests are going to be wearing. And in in Exodus 28 verse 3, he simply says this. He says to Moses to tell all the skilled men whom I have given wisdom in such matters to come and make the clothes for Aaron. Tell all the skilled men gifted who I have given wisdom in such matters. Oh, the gifts come from God. To come and to make the clothes. To come and do some work for me. I love it. In the Old Testament, that is what the nation did. They came understanding that they had been gifted by God to come and work for God to come and play their part in the building of the nation. Well, it is no longer that nation in question. It is a new race. It's a new family, a new temple. It is called church. Church is filled with gifted and well-enabled people that by the grace of God then have a part to play. You want to know if God is calling you to come and use your gifts and abilities for his glory? Then read Ephesians. Because quite clearly, as we read Ephesians 4 verse 16, it says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, Listen, when each part is working properly. What? Well, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each part, each part that has been gifted by God, all working properly, oh, it is then. 
It is then and only then that the church starts to build itself up in love. It is then and only then that the church starts to be the bride that God has called them to be in the communities. It is then and only then that the angels in the heavenly realms look on and see the manifold wisdom of God displayed as the parts do their work. We passionately participate. James Montgomery Boy says it this way. I love this. He says, God is letting history unfold like a great drama upon a cosmic stage. The angels are the audience and we are the actors. And this drama has been unfolding across the centuries as first Adam and Eve, then Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul and all the other men and women of Christian history, both the great and the minor, are brought onto stage to play the part that God assigned them and speak words that come from hearts that love him. Listen, and now you and I are the players in this drama. Satan is on the attack and the angels are straining forward to look on. Are they seeing the manifold wisdom of God in you as you go through your part and speak your lines? Would they see it? For it can be seen in you alone. And it is on your stage where you serve and work and play and think and speak that you are called to deliver your lines. My friends, in the right sense, this is our time. This is it. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Peter, Paul, James, John, they've delivered their lines. And now, in Sydney, as the communities await us, as today they play sports together and go boating together and hang out together and have our barbecues together, communities that need Jesus, as the angels in the heavenly realms look on to observe, it's your lines that they now need to see. We can't abdicate this role. We give God thanks for this role for the opportunity that he is presenting to us. In the right sense, this is our time. Our communities need to see Jesus. You only have to go and spend time at the RSL to realize they need Jesus. The angels desire to see his wisdom. How are our communities going to see this? How are the angels in the heavenly realms going to see this? Well, they're going to see it as we deliver our lines. We must deliver our lines. We must passionately participate. And number three then, while we get connected and committed in, while we passionately participate, number three, we consistently give thanks. See, the bottom line as we come into this end of this tour is this. For us, there should be no tour. For us, there should be no story. For us, there should be no parts for us to play. For us, there should be no lines for us to deliver. Because we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had rejected God. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were on a collision course with his wrath and then destined for hell. And yet God in all grace, being rich in mercy, saved us. 
He reconciled us to himself and then he reconciled us to one another. And then he builds us together to a place where we belong. He gives us a home, a place by when we're sad and struggling, we're able to be cared for and encouraged. A place where when we're tired and just down in the grace of God, we can come and be prayed for. A place where when we're discouraged and condemned, we can be reminded a place where quite simply we call church. See, my friends, we don't deserve this. In the God's grace, we never deserve this. And so would we never tire, would we never ever tire of giving thanks? Arthur Wallace, one of the guys who really led the restoration movement in the United Kingdom, said this. He said, find out what God is doing in your generation and throw your lives into it. Find out what he's doing. I loved it. And I was about 14 when I heard that. And I thought, this is a lot of fun. Find out what he's doing in your generation and throw your life into it. Bingo. Quite like the sound of that. So I started a hunt. What is God doing in our generation? What is he doing through young men and women? What is he doing by God's grace to help see this world one for Christ? What is he doing? Because I'm going to jolly well throw my life into it. I didn't want to do it when I was 14, but I certainly wanted to do it potentially when I was older. What is it then that he is doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's building the church. He's doing the same thing today that he was doing 2,000 years ago in the book of Ephesians. He's doing the same thing in the book of Ephesians that he's doing from generation to generation to generation to generation. We don't need to be looking to find anything new. There is nothing new. There's just an old, old story. There's the glories of the gospel and the home of the gospel and the place of the gospel and the place where the gospel is proclaimed from is the local church. It is church. And so you want to find out what God is doing in your generation? (laughs) He's building the church. And that is what the book of Ephesians is all about. And so I want to encourage you, Sovereign Grace Church, throw then your lives into building the thing that God is doing. Get connected and get committed. If you are not committed and connected to this local church, that's okay as long as you're connected and committed to another church. But if you are not connected and committed to any church, you are making a big mistake. The Bible knows nothing of that. So find a local church and throw yourself into it. While you're there, participate in it passionately. Bring your gifts and abilities to bear so that that church may be built for the glory of God. And as you do that, consistently look around and consistently give thanks, being aware that you deserve none of this because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And as you do then, as you throw your lives into it, would you know then, and would we all know then, the smile of the king, the smile of the great planner, the saviour, the greatest planner of all. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how can we thank you enough for the great plan of the church. Lord, the church, something that we can so often take for granted and just date and consider that primarily the church is just there for us and and just lets us down as we review. 
how often we're treated and how often different things happen. But Lord, the church is your bride. It's the church that you gave your life for. And so, Father, would you help us by your grace to have the same passion for your bride that you do? Would you help us by your grace to want to throw energy and participation into building that which you are building? Lord, help us to be connected and committed and to play our parts and help us, Lord, to be grateful. Lord, to think that we were dead in our transgressions and sins and yet you died for us, brought us back to yourself and then gave us a home. Lord, would we never lose sight of what you're building and for your glory, would we always play our part. In Jesus' name, amen.